Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. A remote cave in western Georgia, east of the Black Sea shore, is a treasure trove for scientists seeking answers among the scattered stalagmites. But this team of archaeologists is only mildly interested in the ancient bones on the floor of the cave. Instead, they gather buckets of sediment on the hunt for ancient DNA, like that extracted from the mummified remains of Copper Age humans and frozen mammoths. This kind of DNA used to be a precious find, obtained only through the careful sequencing of well-preserved fossils and bones. It took luck, money, and usually a trek to the Arctic. But now, scientists are finding it everywhere. The scientists published the results of their Georgian cave study last spring in the journal Scientific Reports. Their work shows that bears, roe deer, and bats were present in this region at least as far back as 80,000 years ago. But finding traces of late Pleistocene animals just scratches the surface of what can be done with environmental DNA, or eDNA. These are traces of genetic molecules from long-dead organisms that survive as cell-free residues in the soil or other terrain. One of eDNA's advantages is that it can signal the remnants of organisms with soft bodies, allowing scientists to reconstruct entire ecosystems, complete with plants, algae, and more. Environmental genomics, also known as metagenomics, truly lets us see the ancient world in a few grains of sand. Laura Parducci is an evolutionary plant ecologist at Uppsala University in Sweden who wasn't involved with the paper. The big benefit is that you can get DNA from species that are actually not visible in the fossil record. And this means that you can get a signal from microorganisms, which otherwise would be not possible to look at them in the fossil record I'm talking about. Parducci studies ancient ecosystems by extracting eDNA from lake bed sediments in Scandinavia. She hopes to understand how plant communities responded to climate change in the past. It's been harder to gain insights into ancient plants compared to animals because plant remnants are harder to find in the geologic record. Seeds and wood break down more readily than durable animal bones. But Parducci points to one lake in Bolivia that has a fossil record that goes back much further than in other areas. It's covering basically the last two million years because there there has not been glaciation. And if you are lucky enough to find a place that has been preserved for such a long time intact and you are able to extract the sediments there, now the question is, can you extract DNA from something that is one million years old? So far, no one has done it. Parducci actually wants to dig a bit deeper into the record of the area she's studying. She wants to reconstruct the past of organisms like microbes, which leave no obvious trace. The moment an organism dies, its body begins to decompose. Its cells rupture. Their contents spill into the environment. But even though the physical structure of a body disappears, its DNA can last for centuries— S.K. Willerslev is an evolutionary geneticist at the University of Copenhagen. He's found this DNA in the least likely of places, including the soil underneath glaciers and in caves. 
His work has helped rewrite natural histories around the globe by reconstructing ecosystems that are perhaps 450,000 years old or maybe older. Willerslev says the idea came to him as a graduate student. I was looking out the window, you know, in the autumn, and I saw leaves falling from the trees, and I saw a dog taking a crab on the street. Of course, there's DNA in these things, right? We know that. We know there's DNA in it, but we also know that after a few years, the leaves has disappeared, and we know after the next rainfall, the dog pieces will also disappear. But the question that I kind of raised was what happens to that DNA? Is that also disappearing or could it somehow be preserved in the sediments? Willerslav's graduate research focused on microbes that had been trapped in ice sheets between 2,000 and 4,000 years ago. Given that it's originally snow falling down from the sky, the rationale was, well, maybe this snow is bringing with it various types of microorganisms. And by going into, you can say, ice, you can potentially reconstruct the microbial diversity through time. This required Willerslev to extract ancient DNA from glacial ice cores. But ice cores were expensive to obtain. He wondered if there might be other, more accessible places where ancient DNA had accumulated. Willerslev brought up the idea to his thesis advisor while they were in a break room with other professors around. I said, what about this idea of looking at DNA in the soil from things like plants and animals. And, you know, these professors were just laughing. I mean, they said, it's ridiculous. The prospects seemed so dim. Over time, DNA outside of cells becomes damaged. For example, it gets broken down into tiny fragments, the ends of which become riddled with errors from nucleotide base pair substitutions. This further garbles whatever information it had encoded. The deep freeze of glacial ice seemed like the only place where DNA might stand a chance of surviving more or less intact for thousands of years. Still, Willerslev pushed on and kept thinking about the idea. Before I became a scientist, I spent a number of years as an explorer in Siberia and also as a trapper in Siberia. So he says he knew the pathway along the permafrost springs of northeastern Siberia. And I knew from other people's work that cold temperatures are very important for long-term preservation of DNA. So I thought, if I can get some of this permafrost soil, this would be the ideal test for my idea, because if there's anything to it, it should be present at least in the permafrost soil because of the DNA preservation. He managed to get a hold of some permafrost soil from an archaeological dig site. Willerslev thought he was going to need a large amount of soil. Because I thought, you know, the chance of mammoths, for example, or some kind of mammal leaving DNA behind must be very tiny, given that you have to have the animal kind of walking across that spot, right? But he was able to extract some DNA from the sample. The prevailing wisdom said that DNA should have been too riddled with base pair errors to say anything of value about the past. But when Willerslev analyzed the sample, he was amazed to be able to pull out the DNA of ancient mammoths, bison, horses, and a variety of plants. And I was like, this is just incredible. I mean, this is just amazing. So it really seemed even from two grams of sediments from different time periods in Siberia, ranging from 10,000 to, I think some of the samples we had were around 50,000 years old. 
And, you know, you just got this huge diversity coming up. Ullerslav's study, which also included samples from New Zealand, was published in the journal Science in 2003. It was one of the first studies to showcase the potential of ancient environmental DNA. But the new method of obtaining the DNA meant scientists needed a new analytical technique as well. Jamie Wood is a paleoecologist at Manaki Fenua Landcare Research in New Zealand. He studies ecosystem function and composition over the past 50,000 years. You can't just take a DNA sample and sequence it as you would if you were working with a bone because you're going to get DNA sequences of lots of different things. It's just going to be really messy. That's because a clump of ancient soil contains chopped up bits of DNA from animals, plants, and microorganisms that used to live in the area. Each species has a stretch of DNA letters unique to it. The challenge for scientists is parsing through the strings of A's, G's, C's, and T's to identify their species of origin. They have a couple of ways of doing that. In a technique called metabarcoding, the DNA is extracted from the soil and either sequenced directly or amplified first to make more copies of it. Willerslev says sometimes the scientists use universal primers, which recognize small sequences of DNA from all the organisms in one species or family. These molecules can then use the polymerase chain reaction to identify all of the plant DNA or animal DNA to be amplified or replicate. In another technique called shotgun sequencing, all the DNA fragments are sequenced together simultaneously. Sequences isolated by either technique are then matched to a library of known sequences, and scientists can see what specific plants, animals, or microorganisms are in the sample. Wilerslev compares the process to police forensics, where experts collect DNA from a crime scene, then match it to a database of criminals. Creating an accurate picture of the past depends on the quality and preservation of the ancient DNA sample. When an organism dies, its DNA becomes vulnerable to a variety of threats, like DNA-digesting enzymes that spill out of the dead cells and microbes that feast on the decaying tissues. Strong sunlight can blast it with damaging UV rays. Over time, the DNA breaks down into small pieces. Its sequence becomes riddled with nucleotide deletions and errors. Scientists prefer to find DNA in ice or permafrost because it slows down or inhibits these destructive processes. Caves and lake beds are protective environments, too. So far, the oldest eDNA recovered was from permafrost soil. Dating techniques place it somewhere between 450,000 and 800,000 years old. Samples any older than that are probably too hopelessly degraded and contaminated to be meaningful. So we're probably not going to see dinosaur DNA recovered like in the movie Jurassic Park. Dino DNA would date back tens or hundreds of millions of years. Laura Parducci, who primarily studies ancient DNA trapped in lake beds, says there are many caveats when using eDNA. So far, most of these studies, if you look at the literature, they are mostly metabarcoding based. So they are based on this technique where you amplify first the barcode target region of your interest, and then your sequence. But that can amplify different targeted fragments of DNA at different rates, which can distort the original DNA ratios. 
Second, the databases for matching and identifying the extracted DNA are not complete. Parducci says this can be a problem. Your database must be very good, otherwise you don't get a good response. Scientists create the databases by uploading DNA sequence data about individual species. The databases don't reflect the total amount of biodiversity in the wild. Still, evolutionary geneticist S.K. Willerslev is optimistic as databases grow exponentially each year. He says that means the level of identification improves every year. Paleoecologist Jamie Wood says painstaking measures have to be taken to ensure modern DNA doesn't get mixed up in the ancient sample. As DNA gets older, it degrades in a number of different ways. It breaks down into very small fragments, but also you lose a lot of the DNA. So you're dealing with very, very small quantities of quite badly damaged DNA. And so if you've got a sample that has very small amount of DNA in it, it's really easy to swamp out that signal by any modern DNA that enters a sample. So for example, ancient bones in museum collections, just having people handle those bones can vastly swamp out the ancient DNA in the bones. For environmental samples, it's things like pollen blowing and landing on the sample. Wood says it's easy to contaminate ancient samples with modern DNA. In the work we do, we're pretty familiar with what we expect in the samples because we do not just DNA analyses, we combine it with pollen analyses and various other techniques. So if something stands out as being quite odd, then we would question it in our results. And quite often there are things that turn up pretty frequently and They tend to be common food items. So, for example, cucumber turns up a lot. (laughs) Banana turns up a lot. And we're not really sure where these contaminants come from. And it's possible they're actually in the laboratory reagents we use. And so we just become familiar with these things that turn up repeatedly. And of course, they're not part of the pre-human ecosystem. So we know that if we find something that's from another part of the world, then it's likely to be contamination. Things like banana and cucumber have also been sequenced a lot, and they're well represented in the plant DNA database, which further increases the chance of spurious matches. In his work, Wood has to be careful to weed out fact from fiction. To do so, he combines his DNA analysis with information from pollen and geologic records. Each one tells you something different about the past, When you use them all together, that's where the real power comes in, I think, understanding those past ecosystems. Wood recently obtained ancient DNA from rodent middens, or debris piles, that were buried in rock crevices in the Chilean desert from as far back as 50,000 years ago. Little rodents created nest sites in rock crevices, and they built their nests out of whatever plants they could find in the local area. So they got bits of these plants, dragged them back, built a nest out of them. And then essentially they've peed all over the nest. And that urine has crystallized and hardened, and it preserves the entire nest intact. That means there was well-preserved DNA. We've got 30 of these middens. They're all carbon dated. And people have worked on plant DNA from these samples, but 
I was kind of interested to see what else might be preserved in them. Wood was particularly interested in the plant pathogens he might find. He wanted to know how their prevalence may have shifted over the last ice age during a period when annual precipitation in the region was higher. The results were published in Scientific Reports in November of 2018. Wood found six different taxa that contained only plant pathogens. He couldn't identify the exact species present because the DNA was too deteriorated, but he was able to narrow down his sample. They included fungi, but also oomycetes, which are another group of plant pathogens. That include things like Phytophthora, which is a very common pathogen at the moment, causes potato blight. The paper reports on what seems to be the oldest DNA recovered from plant pathogens. We detected signals of change and then realized that it actually had quite big implications because there's a huge body of work going on at the moment where people are trying to model what might happen to plant pathogens with future climate change. And so rather than relying on models to predict into the future, we were actually able to go back into the past where there was a big climate change event and actually study essentially in real time how these organisms responded to that. Wood found for some of these, increased rainfall drove their prevalence, but others not so much. There were some plant pathogens that didn't seem to respond at all. There was no statistical difference between the wet and dry climate periods. But then we found others that did respond quite dramatically. And so what I think that highlighted is that there's different climatic drivers for these different pathogens. Some are probably responding to moisture, while others probably require temperature or changes and other things to change their abundance. Wood is interested in using data from the past to predict how a warming and wetter climate might affect plant diseases, especially those that hit crops. Our study's not going to solve everything, but it's a really great case study for how you can look at the past and that information could help you improve your models and ability to predict how things might change with future climate change. And then by predicting, you know, if an area is going to become suitable for a particular pathogen, you can set up some sort of management plan either to prevent it spreading to that area or have something in place to manage it once it arrives. Well, many scientists are scouring caves, lakes, and fossilized rodent droppings for ancient DNA, others are taking to the seas. Marine biologist Maria del Carmen Gomez Cabrera and her team of researchers from the University of Queensland in Australia are using ancient eDNA from the ocean floor. They're trying to understand how the community of corals in the Great Barrier Reef changed over time. Over the past 200 years or so, slower-growing, pollution-tolerant corals replaced fast-growing corals in the Great Barrier Reef. The change coincides with the rise of European colonization in Australia. It became more pronounced during the past 70 years. That's when the area saw widespread water pollution from clearing the land, raising livestock, and growing monoculture crops. Coral reefs are wonderfully diverse ecosystems, housing thousands of species. For Gomez Cabrera, learning about organisms that share the Great Barrier Reef with corals would provide a wealth of information about the reef's health over time. We study mostly in paleoecology ancient reefs, and very few organisms 
in ancient reefs leave a fossil record. <clears throat> Mostly coral reefs leave a fossil record and a few other organisms. But the big interactions between corals and other important reef dwellers is not possible to tease out because they don't leave fossil records. When corals die, they leave an empty space that's quickly colonized by seaweed. Certain types of seaweed can accordingly be used as a proxy to gauge coral die-offs. So Gomez Cabrera set out to find signs of seaweed in the eDNA record of the Great Barrier Reef as a guide to historical rates of coral death here. There was always this nagging problem in the back of our minds that we were trying to paint a picture of past ecosystems based only on very few players. To obtain the sediment cores, Gomez Cabrera and her team went diving at the Great Barrier Reef to collect samples of sediment. We put a tube, usually about a 10 centimeter in diameter, and made an aluminum tube, and then we dried that inside the sediment. It's very hard labor to do that, like we just pound and pound and pound with a hammer this tube in the sediment as far as we can get it in. Sometimes we manage to get very long sediment cores, like five meter long, and sometimes, I don't know, half a meter deep. There are some layers of the reef that have cemented to a point where nothing can actually penetrate it. But whatever we can, we just try to get as long as we can. These corals have been deposited over the 13,000 year lifespan of the reef. The team removed the cores and took them back to the lab for analysis. They found seaweed DNA from as far back as 750 years ago. In their paper, published in February of last year, they found that the relative abundance of brown seaweed was great during periods when the corals were hard to find, and vice versa. The results indicate that brown seaweed DNA could be used to understand coral growth over time. The authors warned their results could be influenced by the differential preservation of ancient DNA, since the DNA from all organisms and locations might not be equally well protected against degradation over time. But the finding was replicated in many different cores throughout the reef, supporting their conclusions. This early study demonstrates that eDNA can provide valuable information about the community structure of soft-bodied organisms in the coral reef. In the future, that might provide a more complete picture of reef health. As the methods improve and the reference DNA libraries expand, many scientists are encouraged to think that environmental DNA will eventually allow them to look at both past biodiversity and past evolutionary change. Evolutionary geneticist S.K. Willerslev is hopeful. Within a few years, not even maybe, I think you can start looking at things like selection, for example, in the environmental record. By observing gene frequencies over time in a species, scientists can glean a picture of how that organism evolved in response to environmental changes and selection pressures. Willerslev sees environmental DNA spreading to other fields. I think, yeah, I think this is where the future is. We've learned a lot, but I also think that, you know, also looking at soil DNA, human DNA can tell mm -hmm. us when did first people come to the Americas? When did uh, different groups of people enter in different places? So I think it's not only in ecology, it's also in archaeology. I think the environmental DNA will be amazing.
If you imagine that one archaeological dig site can provide materials for dozens of labs at a fraction of the cost of obtaining bones, it's reasonable to say the future is in dirt. Matt Karlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Monique Brulette's full article, Ancient DNA Yields Snapshots of Vanished Ecosystems, on our website, quantamagazine.org. You can also read more about science and the origins of life's complexity in the quanta book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press, available now wherever you buy books. <laughs>